This is the O'Reilly Programming Podcast. I'm Jeff Blyle. Our guest today is Bridget Cromhout. She's a principal cloud developer advocate at Microsoft, and she was previously principal technologist at Pivotal Software. She's a frequent speaker at tech conferences, and she will be leading a workshop titled Kubernetes 101 at the upcoming O'Reilly Velocity Conference, June 11th through 14th in San Jose, California, and at the O'Reilly Open Source Convention, OzCon, July 16th through 19th in Portland, Oregon. She also gave a keynote at the 2017 O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference, and you can find out more about all these items on Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform. Go to safaribooksonline.com for more details. Bridget is also co-host of the podcast Arrested DevOps, and she leads the DevOps organization globally and the DevOps community in her home area of Minneapolis. We'll talk to Bridget about Kubernetes, containers, and more. Enjoy the show. Hello, Bridget. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jeff. Glad to be here. Well, before we get into Kubernetes and container management, let's start with containers themselves. Um, You've pointed out that, of course, containers aren't new, but it's really only been within the last maybe seven or eight years since we can say that containers have been, quote, mainstream. Why did that happen? And is it accurate to say that Docker was kind of the main driver of that? Yeah, absolutely. So as as you're pointing out, and as I've definitely spoken on at length, uh, the Linux kernel features of C groups and namespaces certainly aren't new. The idea of containers in terms of isolation, I mean, that's been going on in, you know, Solaris zones and in FreeBSD chirrut jails. Like there's kernel features going back to the 70s in Unix. But in the work that Docker was doing with the dot cloud paths that they then pivoted to just focusing on the containerization technology ended up democratizing containers. It ended up making it so that you didn't need to be a kernel expert. You didn't need to be um, delving into LXC. Uh, you, You could use containers as a developer without needing to focus on kernel features that perhaps were far outside of the realm that you wanted to focus on. You know, basically making the, setting the abstractions such that It was more usable. I'm not going to say like easy necessarily, but certainly more usable for a wider variety of developers, operations engineers, et cetera. I think that's the the genius of Docker is having democratized containers and making them more available so that it increased adoption significantly. Okay, so why is Kubernetes so important in this story or this history? Yeah, so once you have a bunch of containers, uh, you can launch containers on your, you know, instances, perhaps on your VMs or on your bare metal, however you feel about that. But the containers are not enough, right? The applications still need to be wired together. You still need to auto-scale things. You still need to do service discovery. There's an awful lot that goes into making operable applications on containerized platforms that's not just the C groups and namespaces themselves. And so orchestrators started getting a lot of attention when people started using containers in production and realizing that they needed a little bit more to make them even more usable. Um, Kubernetes is definitely not the only orchestrator out there. It's a very popular one. Some other people use Nomad, they use Swarm. Like There's a number of orchestration technologies, so I don't want to make it sound like Kubernetes is the only one that exists. It's definitely the most popular one right now. And it being an open source project, of course, means that there's a lot of movement in this space in terms of extending it and in terms of building on it. Your recent 
conference presentations, in, including the ones you'll be doing at the O'Reilly Velocity Conference and, and OzCon, which we mentioned at the top of the show. They're titled Kubernetes 101. So what kind of 101 type details are you focusing on in, in these talks? So probably the, the most important part is that they are not actually talks. They're two and a half, three hour workshops. And I point that out not to be pedantic, but to say that while you definitely could give um, in you know, an O'Reilly conference, it would be like a 40 minute time slot. You definitely could do a pretty decent overview and people have done pretty decent overviews of the technologies and how they're wired together. But I find that it's nice if you have the time, if, if you can fit it in, it's nice to have people get hands on so that they can start seeing what some of the, um, both the capabilities and also what some of the failure states look like. Like I think until you see a technology error out and then you fix it, you don't really understand it as well as you do after that. Can you talk about the example or examples that you'll use during the workshop and kind of what attendees will learn about what Kubernetes can do as, as that example gets developed? Yeah. So again, because it's a 101 level, um, and this is, it's based on the open source uh, container training that you can see online at container.training. Jerome Petazzoni started this when he was at Docker. And I think it's a very good overview of if you have a Kubernetes cluster, and this workshop does start with a cluster that is pre-configured for people, because otherwise, again, this is a less than half-day workshop. If you're doing a full day or two days, you can build it from scratch. But that takes a lot of time when people hopefully want to figure out what it looks like when they have one that works. So it's stand up a cluster that give it to people. And then they start by trying to examine the cluster, launch applications, scale the applications, look at what the applications look like when they're failing, and look at how both the uh, command line interface and the GUI dashboard look. And then, you know, kind of a break and fix sort of experience so that people feel I mean, hopefully, and I have heard from people, I just ran this myself for the first time last week um, at IndexConf back in SF. And uh, I think people feel like they have a broader understanding of what a lot of the moving parts look like, because there's a lot of moving parts. Let's talk about some of those moving parts, because I wonder if you can give us kind of a quick overview of the main parts of a Kubernetes architecture, the master, the nodes, the pods, and what they all do. Mm -hmm. I think that in the amount of time we have for this podcast, we're not going to go into too much detail probably, but I think it's probably, it's useful to say like in a production Kubernetes cluster, there will be a master node and it's not going to have, like the master node is not going to have uh, jobs running on it necessarily. It can, but it usually by convention, they're not scheduled on the master node because people are talking to the API on the master node and the worker nodes are the ones that, and again, like, you certainly can scale clusters for purposes of this workshop. We're just giving people three nodes. We're giving them one master node and two worker nodes just to kind of see it in action, as it were. And there's a lot of components. And I feel like I want to say there'll be a link in the show notes. Do we do show notes for this podcast? We will, yes. <laughs> Great, fantastic. Because there's a diagram in the container training, like in the slides, that it's probably useful just to kind of show like what we're looking at. So I'll just refer you to which page we're looking at here. Bring it up really quick. In the container training, um, like in the index conversion that I did, I'll, I'll give you the link to this, uh, slide 59. There's a pretty good image that is, it's a simplified representation of a Kubernetes cluster that is courtesy of like a container mine medium post. And I like that 
It shows the master node with the API server, the scheduler, the controller manager, and etcd. And I think it's important to highlight that in any distributed system, state needs to be stored somewhere. And in the case of Kubernetes, it's you know using etcd to store state. Then on the nodes, it's probably worth uh, highlighting the the kubelet and kube proxy. I'll talk about kube proxy for just a minute because people appreciate when they're interacting with their cluster, they appreciate being able to refer to components by name so that they aren't constantly referring to IP addresses. But obviously, we don't really have DNS inside the cluster, but we do have the ability to proxy traffic around. So we can say like, this is what we're going to call this, you know, component, and then we can refer to it by name and have the traffic proxy like to the correct port. It's probably worth like highlighting as well that etcd can be run on separate machines or across the cluster. Like the reason I hesitate to make a lot of overarching like proclamations is that there are, it's kind of one of those, there's more than one way to do it. There's a lot of different ways that you can configure your cluster, but you're probably going to like, you're going to, for example, you're going to run a container engine and people often run Docker. They could run other container engines. Like they don't have to run Docker. They could use Rocket. They could use Cryo. Like the container runtime interface is, while it's a newer project, it's coming along. Like, so there's there's optionality there. There's a lot of pluggable components. Or you also need an overlay network. Um, if we refer to our architecture diagram, like you're going to use something to make all of the nodes talk to each other. It could be something like Flannel. Um, in, in this particular workshop, we're using Weave. And that doesn't mean that like Weave is the right answer. It's just what we're using. But there's like 15 different things that you could be using. It's deliberately fairly, un Kubernetes in general is deliberately fairly unopinionated because it's meant to provide a pluggable system that people can configure to match their needs. In the Kubernetes community, are there open source projects being worked on now that kind of aim to make Kubernetes easier to use? Oh, so many. <laughs> so many. In the this particular workshop, we use uh, Kube ADM to stand up the cluster and like put it together. And, and then obviously there's like the, the Kube control or Kube control, whatever you want to call it, like command line that people also use for cluster management. But Chris Nova, for example, who is at Heptio now has a really interesting project called uh, Kubicorn. And it's kind of kind of like take a step back and make it possible to manage clusters across clouds. So there's there's like a lot of there's a lot of different options in there. Um also like all of the major cloud providers have come out with kind of a managed Kubernetes like as a service. Amazon has EKS and um, GKE on Google and of course at Microsoft where I work we have AKS on Azure. So basically a lot of I think uh, my coworker Eric St. Martin who helps run um, he's one of the founders of GopherCon and he likes to say Kubernetes is not the thing it's what gets you to the thing. Like so a lot of a lot of people who are using Kubernetes are using it because they want to run highly available, you know, distributed systems. They don't necessarily want to spend all their time focusing on Kubernetes internals. So while like I'm running a 101 class that lets people get their mind around what some of the Kubernetes internals looks like, we also don't want to be like, hey, and we're going to spend a whole bunch of time thinking about Kube proxy. It's like, well, what can you do with it? Like moving that level of abstraction up the stack a little bit is beneficial to most people's interests. Let's let's go back to AKS for just a moment, because that, that's uh, Microsoft's Azure container service, right? Mm -hmm. And designed to make Kubernetes environments uh, easier to manage and to create a Kubernetes cluster. 
Can, can you give us a little more detail about that? Sure. So I think probably the useful distinction to draw is that there's a couple of different ways you can use it. And I can't speak to what the other clouds do. I'm sure they have something similar. But with the Azure Kubernetes managed service, like on AKS, ACS, whatever, you have choices between do you want to run the control plane or not? So sometimes if you're going to, for example, if you want to use some really interesting open source projects to really customize it, you might want to run that master node, or you might really just want to run hosts against like a managed master node. And we give you an option so that you can decide what's more useful for you. And also, of course, in the in the fine tradition of cloud providers everywhere, we don't, um, some of the, the way the billing works, like you're not going to be billed for the, if you're not managing the control plane components, you're not billed for those as part of like your, your permanent billing. Let's go back to containers. Mm-hmm. Because you've also, in previous years, given presentations with the interesting title of Containers Will Not Fix Your Broken Culture. And there you were primarily talking about non-technical issues like communication within a company or what an organization incentivizes. Can you talk more about that? Sure, absolutely. I actually think those are they're highly coupled with containers because one of the promises of containerization is this idea that you can ship all your dependencies with your application and that IT team who upgrades things without talking to you can't break your thing anymore. So that is true to a point. And it's also not necessarily true depending on exactly what kind of kernel support is going to be in whatever the IT team's underlying substructure is. But it's also it also kind of hangs a lantern on the fact that across our organizations, we often have to communicate about something, whether it's breaking changes or supported versions, or if you're um, using, say, Heroku-style build packs, oh, are we dropping support for this specific super old version of Java? Um, or if we're using containers like, oh, okay, uh, say we have Heartbleed, Shellshock, you know, whatever happens, uh, who's going to patch the operating system that lives inside the container that you're shipping a full OS with? Like, even though we have technologies that give us a little bit more autonomy inside, say, a developer team to ship the version of their OS with the exact correct dependencies and maybe with a full version of Ubuntu or whatever, it still matters how across your organization you're going to handle things like security, like the the question of... um how exactly do you patch when there's an OS level vulnerability and you're shipping containers that contain an OS with your application? When you start trying to answer those questions, it betrays the places inside your organization where you've been papering over those problems and trying to ignore them. And the containers, having containers certainly do help with your feature velocity and with uh, decreasing friction across the organization. But having containers in and of itself, just like having VMs, just like having you know, Unix, just like having anything, it doesn't, it doesn't solve the fact that there are still going to be those touch points and those splash points and those places of friction that you still have to solve those issues. And we've, we've all seen that inside our technology organizations, we often think we can solve those issues with technology. And then we end up with people routing around the, you know, heavyweight process or whatever. And trade-offs are also an important consideration when it comes to choosing a container orchestrator. Um, what would you cite as some of the trade-offs to be considered there? I mean, probably a good one to consider is what level of uh, new feature, you know, feature velocity versus support is really important to you. So say you're using a container orchestration engine that's being managed by your cloud provider, then yeah, you probably don't need to worry about patching the orchestrator itself. Say you're standing it up yourself in your data center, that might be something that you have to worry about unless you go with one of the, you know, there's, there's providers like a 
Heptio is the little startup that I mentioned that it's kind of funny. Um, of the three people who started the Kubernetes project at Google, one of them, Brendan Burns, now works at Microsoft and the other two founded Heptio. So <laughs> that's why I've brought them up in kind of the context of the, of, um, the container stuff. They do a mainline Kubernetes distribution managed for you, but it's not a specialized distribution. It's just we will manage regular Kubernetes for you as a service. Like, I think that's the sort of thing where there's a pretty big gulf between I've run through Kubernetes 101 at Velocity, and now I think I understand Kubernetes. There's a big gulf between that. And so therefore, the Fortune 500 company I work at totally wants me to run Kubernetes in production myself that I spun up this week. Like, I think that's where the both the cloud providers and a lot of the um, service providers out there can help with getting people ramped up from the, okay, I think I've wrapped my brain around it, to, and therefore I can run the entire thing. <laughs> okay, Bridget, back to Kubernetes for, for one more question. Is there anything that you're especially kind of keeping your eye on now as far as some interesting new projects in that space? Sure, absolutely. So I think related to Kubernetes, as people are working on like their architecture, there's the, the Istio service mesh is particularly interesting. It was kind of funny at IndexConf, um, Kelsey Hightower, who's you know works at Google and has done many talks about Kubernetes, was talking about Istio in his keynote at this conference last week. And he said, don't run out and deploy this in production immediately. This is very new tech. So I, I'm going to kind of say like, it is new tech, but how you handle, you know, service discovery, crosstalk between services, that sort of thing is pretty interesting. So that's Istio, I-S-T-I-O, is an interesting project in this space that people might want to check out. And there's, and I did mention uh, Heptio is a company that has a number of open source projects that are Kubernetes related. That's pretty interesting. I think Honeycomb is another startup that has a lot of really interesting stuff going on specifically around observability because very tied into building these complex systems, you know, orchestrator controlled systems is the need to be able to introspect them and to find those, you know, unknown unknowns in the system. So that's pretty interesting. And brigade.sh, that one's kind of interesting because it's event-driven scripting for Kubernetes. Because when people start preparing their Kubernetes clusters, like they get really tired of writing endless YAML. And so like easier scripting for your clusters is something that people are pretty excited about. And finally, while we have you here, I, I want to ask you about DevOps days. As you're a lead organizer in that organization, uh, can you tell us about what's happening there now? And also, has has that effort changed over the years? Sure, absolutely. Uh, so DevOps Days started in 2009 with one conference in Belgium, in Ghent. And I joined the organization. I, I ran a conference in Minneapolis in 2014. And Patrick Dubois, who started this conference series, decided to retire, as it were, at the end of 2014. And I took over to run the global organization at the beginning of 2015. And we started kind of doing the try to scale up thing. And so we've gone from you know, having a dozen or a couple dozen events to last year, we had 51 conferences on six continents. So it's not small, that's for sure. And I think probably the, the best thing about, you know, scaling broadly is that the events are hyper-local. Like you tend to have the organizers for a city are from the local area. A lot of the speakers are often local. They get some speakers to fly in too, but it's it's really nice as a, a mechanism for sharing both with um, talks, you know, conference talks of a traditional style, but then also that usually the afternoons are devoted to open space. So it's the unconference with attendee suggested discussion groups, discussion breakout groups, and, you know, kind of 
like inspired by what was discussed in the morning, you know, conference talk. So it's like you, you move from broadcast to, you know, kind of cross chatter. And I think it's a, it's a really powerful mechanism to let people in an area start sharing across organizations and figuring out where they can learn from each other. So it's, it's pretty exciting to be involved with helping scale up an organization that it is, you know, I think one of the most powerful things we can do as technologists is learning and sharing to build on what each other is doing. That's great. And uh, Bridget, if our listeners want to find out more about you and your activities, where can they go? Sure. So I tweet at Bridget Cromhout and um, I occasionally blog at BridgetCromhout.com and they can listen to our episodes of Arrested DevOps, which is also linked from my website. So, And we will also have a link to that. Yeah. Bridget Cromhout, Principal Cloud Development Advocate at Microsoft. It's been a pleasure speaking with you and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. And thank you for listening. Once again, you can see and hear our guest, Bridget Cromhout, leading the Kubernetes 101 workshop at both the O'Reilly Velocity Conference in June in San Jose and at OzCon in July in Portland. To find out more about these conferences or to register, go to O'Reilly.com slash conferences. And to watch videos of Bridget's presentations at the 2017 Software Architecture Conference and 2016 Velocity Conference, go to Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform, and we'll have links to all these things, as well as a few other items we talked about during the podcast in the show notes that accompany this episode. If you like our podcast, please subscribe via iTunes, TuneIn, SoundCloud, or Stitcher so that you never miss an episode. For the O'Reilly Programming Podcast, I'm Jeff Lyle.